Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this month's episode number 23 on vaginal bleeding in early pregnancy, we have with us Dr. David Dushensky and Dr. Ross Klebo. Dr. Dushensky is an emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, where he's the Deputy Director and Quality Assurance Coordinator. He's a lecturer at the University of Toronto and has won multiple postgraduate teaching awards. Dr. Ross Claybo is an emergency physician at North York General, Sunnybrook, and Markham Stouffville Hospitals. He graduated from the University of Toronto Emergency Medicine Training Program in 1985 and has worked in the Middle East. He's a lecturer at the University of Toronto and is active in undergraduate and resident training. Vaginal bleeding in early pregnancy is oh so common. 30% of pregnant women experience vaginal bleeding at some point during their pregnancy, most of which occurs in the first half of pregnancy. And in some centers, like the one that I work in at North York General, we see these patients in the ED on pretty much every shift we do. The majority of these patients don't need much beyond a beta HCG, blood type, a bedside ultrasound, and some counseling and follow-up. But there is a significant minority that'll have an ectopic pregnancy or a serious complication of a miscarriage, both of which still contribute to maternal mortality. We're going to limit our discussion in this episode to vaginal bleeding in the first half of pregnancy because in most hospitals, pregnant patients who are more than 20 weeks gestational age go directly to the obstetrics unit, and so we almost never see things like placenta previa and abruption, which typically present in the second half of pregnancy. So with the help of Dr. David Dushensky, who works at one of Canada's biggest tertiary care obstetrics centers, Mount Sinai Hospital, where they see begillions of pregnant patients in the ED, and Dr. Ross Claybo, who's got more than 30 years of clinical experience in both a busy community hospital and an academic center, will provide you with all the pearls and pitfalls you need to know about vaginal bleeding in the first half of pregnancy. So welcome, Dr. Claybo. Thank you. And welcome, Dr. Dushensky. Thanks for having me. Okay, this time, before we jump into our first case, I just want to ask you guys some general questions about vaginal bleeding in the first half of pregnancy. First, Dr. Clebo, what are the most important obstetrical causes of bleeding in the first trimester that we should always consider in the emergency department? Well, I guess the most important in terms of mortality would have to be still ectopic pregnancy, which consists still makes up about 10% of maternal mortality. But more commonly, we're going to see all forms of uh, threatened and spontaneous abortions, and perhaps a rare cause of uh, molar pregnancy or trophoblastic disease. A lot of times, we're going to see fairly benign bleeding, a common first trimester cause of unknown source, perhaps mild placental separation that resolves spontaneously. But you're going to be thinking every time you see a patient who's bleeding in the emergency of the more potential lethal ones, such as ectopic, and work backwards from there. Okay. And what about the non-obstetrical causes of bleeding in women in general? What are some of the other things that we should be on the lookout for? In pregnant patients, so you still could have the normal causes. You could have infections, you could have uh, polyps, you could have tears, trauma. Okay. We, we sometimes hear about uh, implantation bleeding and anembryonic pregnancies. Dr. Dushansky, could you just explain to us what an anembryonic pregnancy is and why we should care about it? Sure. So an anembryonic pregnancy is something that happens where you actually get a fertilized ovum that does implant on the myometrium, but then does not develop any normal uh, embryonic tissue in association with it. So there's a gestational sac, 
that does grow and the HCG level will rise, but there's never going to be a normal embryo or fetus that develops out of that. We don't really know what the cause is, but these are cases that will usually present at some point uh, through the first trimester because they never will progress through to a normal pregnancy. Okay, and the, this is what they used to call a blighted ovum, right? Yeah, it's a, a little bit of a misnomer, and embryonic pregnancy is probably the, the proper term to use for it, but you still hear blighted ovum used a lot. Okay, and when they, when they report it on ultrasound, what do they typically report? So usually they're talking about seeing a gestational sac with no visible yolk sac or fetal pole within it. And when the radiologists talk about this and they talk about it being likely for a, a blighted ovum or an anembryonic pregnancy, they're usually looking at certain size measurements, which statistically make it much more likely to be true. And this sometimes helps us out even when we're doing our, our bedside ultrasound uh, in the emergency department. So if you're seeing a gestational sac that's large, if it's greater than 25 millimeters, and there's no embryonic pole, there's no yolk sac, there's no fetal pole within that, that's virtually certain to be an anembryonic pregnancy. Uh, if you're doing formal and transvaginal ultrasounds, they'll use even smaller measurements because they, of course they've got much higher resolution when you're doing the study that way. And at that point, usually when you're greater than 18 or 20 millimeters, if you're not seeing anything else inside that gestational sac, it's very likely to be an anembryonic pregnancy. Okay, and we'll get onto the management later, but these these things are managed pretty much the same as a missed abortion. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's pretty much the same management pathway once you've made that diagnosis. When it comes to an embryonic pregnancy, what kind of cautionary pearls can you tell us? So I think one of the most important things to, to recognize is that if you do uh, an initial ultrasound and you don't necessarily see a fetal pole or yolk sac, that isn't absolutely diagnostic, especially if the, the sizes are, are small or it's in that sort of indeterminate range. So don't necessarily base a treatment decision based on that one assessment at that time. And you should also interpret this always in conjunction with the patient's clinical symptoms as well. So if they come in with bad lateralizing pain and they've got a sac in the uterus that shows nothing inside of it, you've still got your other more serious diagnoses to consider there and you have to worry about ectopic pregnancies as well. Okay, so with our patient who's bleeding in the first half of pregnancy, we've got to think ectopic, trophoblastic disease, miscarriage, and embryonic pregnancy, and then all the non-obstetrical causes of, of vaginal bleeding that can happen in women who aren't pregnant. Before we get into all the details of the causes of, of first trimester bleeding, this might sound like a bit of a silly question, but what's vital in any patient who presents with a belly pain or vaginal bleeding, we need to know whether they're pregnant or not. And it sounds like a simple question, but let's talk a little bit about how we can determine whether someone is pregnant with 100% certainty or not. So first, when a patient tells you that there's, quote, no way that they're pregnant, how accurate is that? And, and how accurate are regular periods with a recent last menstrual period in determining if a woman is not pregnant? In other words, do we need to do a beta HEG on every woman of childbearing age who presents to the ED? Yes. <laughs> simple answer. Simple yeah, I've, I've seen denial at all stages in my career, including my first year of practice where there was a nine-month pregnant uh, teenager with her mother denying that she was pregnant. So uh, when they say there's no possible way, it, perhaps they're right, but you're taking a huge risk for a patient that you just met a few minutes ago to trust their 
honesty. And the liabilities are so high that and it was such a good test available with the beta ACG. I mean, where I work, we use it on every single woman of all ranges of ages with any abdominal pain and or bleeding that presents. Even if it's an abdominal cause or some other type of GI cause, we still add the beta ACG. And I think anybody who's been working in emergency medicine for long enough has certainly seen cases where the, the patient thought they had very little or no chance of being pregnant and you got surprised with the positive HCG. And most of us, I think, have seen a couple of cases of immaculate conception over the course of our careers as well, where patients flat out said it was impossible that they could be pregnant, that they'd never been sexually active before. And, you know, these are issues that are problematic. And for us, where we work here, I think where we've got a very multicultural population and there's sometimes language and cultural barriers in obtaining the history. I think that these are things that really inform our decision in doing this type of test. And I, I agree. I, I think this should be done on, on pretty much every female patient of childbearing age who comes in with abdominal pain and or bleeding. What about the subset of patients who have had a tubal ligation, for example, in the past? And that's one of the things that makes the patient say, no, I couldn't possibly be pregnant. There is very little to suggest that uh, tubal ligations are, are 100% effective, and we, in fact, know that they're not. And in fact, if you're pregnant with a tubal ligation, that puts you in a very high-risk category for ectopic pregnancy. So that's really the patient that you want to do that on. So I, I absolutely do HCGs on, uh, on patients who have had a history of tubal ligation. Dr. Claybo, could you tell us just a bit about, in normal pregnancy, what we should expect with a beta-HCG? Well, the, the serum beta ACG is very accurate. It's often positive within roughly a week after conception. So that would be about three weeks, like 21 days, 25 days, somewhere in there after their last menstrual period? Yes, roughly. Okay. And of course, the lot of thing about the beta ACG, it's a great test by itself, but it's even a better test when you use it over time because it's the test that has a pretty predictable rise up to about 10 weeks and levels off. And that rise is usually, in most patients, 48 hours, but it can go up to 72 hours. Some people are what they call slow doublers. And I think some authors were saying that they often use a three-day repeat test to determine viability and to rule out abnormal pregnancies. So I find, I certainly rely mostly on the serum beta ACG. And the number is very important. And the number, if I have a previous to compare with, is also very important and also projecting into the future. So predictable test, rises well in normal pregnancies, helps differentiate normal from abnormal. It does level off, though, pretty early, probably earlier than most people expect, maybe at the 10th week, uh, and then plateaus in the second trimester and declines. Okay, so that's the serum beta-HCG, and it has a very high sensitivity, assuming that the patient is more than three weeks after their LMP. How does it compare to the urine beta-HCG? Well, the urine is a little bit less so, but still becomes positive early. I think the cutoff is, was 25 international units versus maybe five for the serum. So you're talking about maybe a week later. Certainly after the, by the time of their first missed period or shortly after, it should be positive. And it's a good quality of test on patients you just wanted to get a quality of response on. The urine beta ACG is pretty good, but in very early pregnancy, especially if you have dilute urine, you can get a false negative. False negative, yeah. It's possible. 
In fact, at our place, we actually stopped doing the urine beta HCGs a, a number of years ago, and we only do serum HCG assessments now, actually. And the, the urine tests are really quite good, the current generations of the tests. As, as you mentioned, the dilute urine is something that can uh, sometimes make the, the test falsely negative. One of the things that we found after we had a, a couple of incidences where we had some false negatives that came up is that performance of the test in terms of when you dip, when you read, how much urine that you actually put on the test is something that can affect its performance as well. And uh, after we had one that ended up being a missed ectopic, we decided that we'd just go to doing serum tests. And uh, we've got good, good enough turnaround time for our labs now that uh, it, it hasn't proved to be a really major impediment for us. And we use urines at the hospitals I work in more just as a courtesy test for the patients who come in with some totally unrelated complaint, and they just want to know if they're pregnant. Uh, so for anybody that has a symptom that may be related to their pregnancy, we don't trust them either. We, we to go with the serum beta if the, if the complaint is bleeding and or lower abdominal pain. So just a quick review of what you need to know about the beta-HCG in normal pregnancy. The quantitative serum beta-HCG becomes detectable at about 8 to 11 days after conception and typically reaches about 200 international units at the expected time of menses. The levels increase more than 66% every two days in about 85% of normal pregnancies and the levels peak out at about 10 weeks gestational age and then gradually decrease in the second trimester. Postpartum levels become undetectable around three to four weeks. The accuracy of the urine beta-HCG compared to the serum beta-HCG is pretty good. However, in very early pregnancy, especially in patients who might have a dilute urine, you can get false negatives. So reserve the urine beta just for those patients who want to know if they're pregnant or not, rather than the patients who present with vaginal bleeding or lower abdominal pain. In a viable pregnancy, the doubling time is usually a bit more than 48 hours, and some authors have suggested using 36 hours instead. Dr. Dushensky is now going to talk about the pitfall of over-reliance on the doubling time. I think sometimes, too, we get a little bit too hung up on the, on the doubling time. Everybody always talks about this classic, it should double every 48 hours and so forth. And, and as Ross mentioned, it's not really quite that cut and dry. It's actually a little bit sort of more trimodal. So very early after the conception, it doubles faster than every 48 hours. And as you're a little bit further out, as you're 30 days post the conception, it's actually doubling less frequently than that. So uh, I think we shouldn't get uh, really too, too focused on that, uh, that absolute number that has got to double every 48 hours. You know, waiting for urine results can be really frustrating and lead to prolonged lengths of stay for some patients. So there are some researchers in Brooklyn who looked at substituting whole blood using a point-of-care whole blood test as a substitute for urine beta-HCG. This was a paper in the Journal of Emergency Medicine last summer, and it showed that compared to a urine beta-HCG, the whole blood beta-HCG had a similar sensitivity, specificity, and negative predictive value. So I'm hoping that this whole blood test will become widely available so that we don't have to wait forever for those urine betas. Just in general terms, what are some of the important questions to ask on history for patients who present with vaginal bleeding in the first half of pregnancy? 
ask about the nature of the bleeding that they're having itself. So, you know, are they just having spotting? Are they having significant bleeding? Are they needing to change pads? If they are, are they soaking the pads? Uh, how frequently are, are they doing this? For some women, it's not so much pads. They'll get gushes of blood. They'll go to the bathroom and sit down on the toilet and strain and, and uh, pass a significant amount of blood, but not be going through pads much in between that. Whether or not they're passing clots uh, can be important as well, and the, the size of the clots, you know, we love to use all our little comparators, is it dime size, toonie size, quarter size, fist sized, and, and so forth, and that can give you some idea as to how much blood they're, they're actually losing as well. You also want to know about uh, pain and cramping in association with the bleeding as well, and in particular if, uh, if that pain lateralizes to one side of the abdomen or another. Asking about abdominal trauma is, uh, I think, also a good idea, whether that's accidental trauma or sometimes related to timing with intercourse. And we always need to keep in the back of our mind, uh, I think, the issues of uh, abuse. This does happen uh, during pregnancy as well. And uh, the literature tells us that the frequency of domestic abuse doesn't drop when women are pregnant. If anything, it stays the same or may even go up a little bit. So sometimes uh, this is a, a prompt for us to ask about that important topic area. Uh, we also want to know details about their obstetrical history as well, their gravity and their parity, whether or not they've had prior miscarriages, whether or not they've uh, had bleeding otherwise in this pregnancy already to date. And of course, whether or not they're an IVF patient is, is really critical in these patients because that changes the, the whole ballgame in a lot of important ways as we continue on with our assessment if they are an IVF patient. Although it's relatively uncommon in this age group, patients with uh, histories of bleeding disorders or who are on anticoagulants, clearly we need to know about as well. And some other things about their past medical history can be quite relevant, particularly with respect to abdominal surgeries. So have they had previous pelvic or abdominal surgeries before? In particular, things that would have caused peritonitis or a ruptured appendix or a prior ectopic that, uh, that ruptured or surgery on a tube can be quite important in the history in terms of determining the risk of this individual patient. And PID, of course, is a, a very important cause of uh, pelvic inflammation that we want to know about that does change the patient's risk stratification too. What's the value of the anti-D immunoglobulin, which is Rogam in Canada, in the RH negative patient who's having vaginal bleeding in early pregnancy? Why do we give this and what are the dosing recommendations for it? So, of course, what, what we're trying to do with this is prevent a sensitization of a mother who's RH negative to fetal red blood cells that are Rh positive, so you would cause an allo immunization result where mom would then form antibodies to the fetal blood cells, and that can cause all kinds of problems in that pregnancy and in subsequent pregnancies as well uh, if the, the fetus ends up being a different uh, blood type than mom. And so by giving this immunization, we know that it's very effective for basically mopping up any fetal blood cells that get into the maternal circulation and preventing that sensitization reaction. A lot of this is fairly theoretical, and this is based on models of how much blood there is in a fetal circulation at a certain gestational age and, and so forth, and how much it takes to actually cause a sensitization uh, in, in a mother. 
So as a result of that, it seems like the dosing recommendations are based on sort of different gestational ages and what our best guess is as to how much the maternal exposure might be. And that's why there's some variation in the dosage recommendations for the rho antiglobulin, and it ranges from anywhere from 50 micrograms up to 300 micrograms, depending on what the gestational age is at the time of the potential exposure. It is important to give, so it's one of the tests that we should be doing on these uh, patients uh, in the emergency room. And the risk associated with giving this is really very, very small, even though it is a blood product. So it is something that uh, is uh, important to, to think about before you actually discharge these patients. Uh, for dosing in Canada or at the hospital that I work at, we have two doses, 120 micrograms or 300 micrograms that are sort of pre-filled uh, syringes that we use. We actually moved a few years ago to just giving 300 micrograms for everybody, regardless of the gestational age, just to simplify it because there were a bunch of different little decision points and we didn't want people making any mistakes and there was virtually no downside to giving the higher dose. So we've uh, actually progressed to the point where we're just giving 300 micrograms for bleeding at any point in pregnancy. And uh, I think the one other thing that we sometimes need to bear in mind and that comes up is that if we get patients who have repeated visits to the emergency room for bleeding in early pregnancy, if you've given one dose of, uh, of Rogam to that patient, they're good up to about 20 weeks, regardless of the uh, initial gestation that they were at when they got the first dose. So you don't need to redose them every time they come into the emergency room with a, a little bit more bleeding. So we've talked a bit about beta-HCGs, we've talked a bit about our differential diagnosis, about RH immunization. Let's go to a case now. So the case is that of a 34-year-old woman, Gravita 2, Para 1, who presents at 11 weeks by dates with a small amount of vaginal bleeding and mild lower abdominal cramping. She's used two pads in the past 24 hours with no clots. There is no history of fever, bowel movements and urination are normal, and she has no nausea or vomiting. She denies any history of trauma or bleeding disorder, has no significant gynecological or surgical history, and no risk factors for ectopic pregnancy. Her first pregnancy was uneventful, and this pregnancy thus far has also been uneventful as well. Just prior to her visit in the emergency department, she had her single visit with her physician, and she doesn't have any results of blood work or ultrasound yet. On exam, her vital signs are normal for a woman in her first trimester, abdomen is soft and non-tender, and her pelvic exam reveals a small amount of bleeding without clots, no significant cervical motion tenderness, a closed os, and no adnexal mass or tenderness. A bedside ED ultrasound reveals no free fluid in Morrison's pouch or in the pelvis, and an IUP with no fetal heartbeat is detected. Her beta-HCG comes back at 6,000, and her blood type is A positive. She goes on to have a transvaginal ultrasound in the radiology department, which reveals a non-viable IUP estimated to be about 12 weeks by size and no fetal heartbeat. Before we get into the specifics of the case, can you just review for our listeners the different types of spontaneous abortions and why it's clinically important to figure out which type your patient has? So this is an area uh, that's changed a lot with the advent of emergency department ultrasound because I think prior to that it was mainly guesswork as to which type it was. The case you're describing is that of a classic missed abortion, but when we see them in an emergency with a small amount of bleeding, you can't tell if it's a threatened abortion, which is basically a closed os, 
perhaps a little bit of placental separation that's going to resolve by itself or subchorionic bleed that hopefully will resolve by itself. And this is the one that's probably the most common of the ones we see. The inevitable abortion is similar, but there's usually more bleeding. The os starts to open. And you may or may not see contents at the cervical os in the emergency department and often associated with pain and cramping as the fetus is uh, expelled by the mother. The other possibility is that it's an incomplete abortion and or missed abortion. And that is that the fetus may be inside. Usually incomplete means it's mostly out, but there's still some retained fragments inside, usually placental tissue that's causing the bleeding and the cramping. And uh, usually it's trying to be expelled by the mother. The missed abortion is probably what you're describing in the case where a woman comes in with bleeding, has a non-viable fetus, and may or may not have had viability early on, may have had a fetal heartbeat earlier on, but that the point of presentation has now become non-viable. The complete ones we see occasionally, the passage of tissue, something that's a little bit different in appearance than clot is important. If that's passed, then the obligation is to make sure that that what came out is fetal tissue. And if you have it in the setting of the patient arriving with it, you can often see it and or send it off for pathology. If the bleeding stops shortly after that and the ultrasound is negative, this is the definition of a complete abortion. And occasionally we'll see that, and occasionally we actually are the ones removing some of that tissue from the vagina in these patients that arrive, and then watching and seeing if the bleeding stops and if the uterus contracts back down. So those are the main varieties of spontaneous abortion that we see in the emergency department. You had alluded to the os being open or closed. Why does it really matter if the os is open or closed? Is it, is it going to change your management of the patient? Well, this is an important point, too, because it... A lot of it falls back on whether we need to do the pelvic exam initially on and patients that come in with light bleeding. So sometimes we don't even know if it's open or closed unless we have an indeterminate ultrasound and then we end up doing the pelvic after the ultrasound. And sometimes if they've had children, it's difficult to tell if they've got the patchless os or, or multip. You're looking at anything you can sort of fingertip into the os or a two centimeter dilation at the opening, at the outside opening. And that sometimes gets misinterpreted. I find that uh, if I relied on that all the time, I'd probably miss ones that are probably closed and look open. So that is of secondary importance to me. The ultrasounds and beta and clinical setting is much more important. Traditionally, as meant is that that means it's in the stage now of early expulsion of the fetus. And if you see that in conjunction with all the other symptoms, cramping and heavy bleeding that's increasing, then often you might want to keep that patient or admit the patient and watch them in the emergency department longer, perhaps to see if it's going to happen in the next few hours. It brings up the question which you alluded to, whether we need to do a pelvic exam at all for these patients who present early in pregnancy with a bit of spotting. There's actually been some studies out there that say that doing routine pelvic examinations on these patients doesn't change management at all. And so this has led some physicians to kind of use it as an excuse that they don't have to do a pelvic exam. What, what's your take on doing routine pelvic exams for patients who present to the emergency department in early pregnancy? In my practice, I will not do it on the ones that come in with minimal or no pain, with a little bit of spotting, with a known pregnancy, and ones I'm going to be doing the ultrasound on that can confirm the viability on ultrasound for them. If what I see in the ultrasound is a viable intrauterine pregnancy with a beating heart and the patient claims they've just got spotting, I probably wouldn't do it on that patient. 
I would reassure them and send them home and have them followed up. If it's not viable on the exam and I'm worried about the topic, of course, then I would probably complete the exam with a pelvic. If the patient is bleeding heavily with cramps, I'd probably do it as well, looking for this, again, uh, variable open os that we just talked about. And or if the complaint's not really a bleeding-related complaint, but maybe something else like pain, I'd certainly do the pelvic to rule out infections and other forms of discharge. So I don't do that on everybody anymore. I go ultrasound first and then make a decision after the ultrasound on a patient with light bleeding first trimester. So there are times where you're looking for a rough estimate of whether the gestational age of the pregnancy is matching what you're finding on clinical exam as well. So someone who says they're six to eight weeks can, with experience, sort of get a feel of what a six to eight normal fetus or normal uterus feels like. If it's small for someone who says that they're advanced in the pregnancy, 10 to 12 weeks, that would maybe be a bit of a red flag to look more towards your next exam and your ultrasound. Uh, worrying about ectopic, if it's abnormally large for their size, uh, gestational age, then you'd have to worry about other forms of perhaps molar pregnancies or trophoblastic disease. So uterine size may be of help in, in select patients as well. Sometimes this is the only opportunity that you have to actually do screening for sexually transmitted diseases in, in these patients as well. And some of our more marginalized populations don't really have good access to medical care, and this is sometimes our, our best opportunity to find those diseases uh, early on and to intervene at that point too. Okay, so we've talked about the history and the physical. We've talked about the beta. I remember when I was training in Ottawa, there was a period when we were ordering serum progesterone for our patients with first trimester bleeding. Is there any value in serum progesterone in combination with your beta-HCG to help you determine whether someone has a viable pregnancy or not? So uh, there, there is evidence in, in the literature out there that shows there are some fairly clear test characteristics for serum levels of, of serum progesterone in, in normal and abnormal pregnancies. And it, it rises in a fashion that's a little bit different than an HCG, which undergoes a progressive rise over, over the first trimester, uh, whereas the, the progesterone level uh, has sort of different characteristics where it tends to remain fairly constant for the first part of the pregnancy in the first trimester and then start to rise after that. And the evidence from the literature does suggest that if your progesterone level is very low, it's usually going to be a non-viable pregnancy. And if it's above a certain level, it's strongly associated with a viable intrauterine pregnancy. But I haven't really been convinced by the evidence in the literature that ultimately it really changes what we do at the emergency department index visit in a significant portion of the patients. So I think it really hasn't caught on. We, we don't do this at our place, and uh, I'm not actually aware of other places that really do this routinely. So it's one of those things where, while I think there is some evidence, and certainly we see the fertility clinics and so forth using this to follow patients along, I think it's got a fairly limited role in the emergency department assessment of first trimester bleeding. So we've been hinting at ultrasound. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about ultrasound. Dr. Claybo, can you review for us uh, what we should expect to see on ultrasound in the normal, viable intrauterine pregnancy according to gestational age? Well, normally what you, what you expect to see, and this, is, this may be limited on what you can functionally do in your department and what you have available. So trans, vag, ultrasound, you can see the viability a lot earlier, and you can often make the diagnosis of missed abortion a lot earlier. 
but with due to some hygienic issues, we don't all have that capability yet in Toronto area, in Canada. But even abdominal can give you a lot of information and uh, can also help point you towards the direction of getting a formal transvag ultrasound in your radiology department. So as a normal pregnancy progresses, you expect to see on the transvag, these are going to become a lot earlier, about a week earlier or so, the beginnings of a gestational sac, which occurs quite early, often about five weeks. At that stage, you'll also, as it enlarges, you'll see a yolk sac develop about a week later, then you feel a pole uh, shortly after the yolk sac, which will be adjacent to the yolk sac. And as that gets to a certain size, they say about five millimeters transvag or perhaps 10 millimeters transabdominally, the fetal pole that size should contain cardiac activity. That would be the normal progression of a live intrauterine pregnancy over time. If we don't have the dates, sometimes they can be out with the patient, so we don't always rely on matching exactly to the patient's history of the last menstrual period, things that we see, because that can be variable. But as a rough guide, it's somebody who has regular periods and has a normal pregnancy at the right time, that's how things progress in the live intrauterine pregnancy. It's also a prognostic thing to tell the patient that the, seeing a fetal heartbeat that there's a 5% chance of miscarriage versus maybe perhaps 50% if you don't see the fetal heartbeat. So a lot of patients want to know that. So let's say you've sent a patient for formal ultrasound and you get back a report. Are there any clues on the formal ultrasound when they say there is a viable IUP, but that there might be an impending miscarriage? Are there any clues from a formal ultrasound that might make you counsel the patient that there could be an impending miscarriage? Well, they've often used the sac size in proportion to the fetal pole. If there's less than a five millimeter differential, that may be a sign of a potential impending miscarriage. Uh, the other thing they'll look at is the heart rate. Uh, certainly, you're look, you want to see something over 100 on the heart rate. If you don't see over 100 on that first visit, then you'll definitely want to get a scheduled follow-up ultrasound for that patient because these are high-risk patients for having spontaneous miscarriages. We had mentioned that a common cause of vaginal bleeding in pregnant patients uh, is subchorionic hematoma. What size subchorionic hematoma puts a patient at increased risk for miscarriage? Well, theoretically, anything more than 25% would put them at increased risk of miscarriage. So 25% or greater of the volume of the gestational sac is slightly higher risk. But I think a lot of this depends more on the patient's age. For example, we, we mentioned the risks when you see viable fetal tissue, what the risks of miscarriage are. And we, we're using about 5% for a younger patient. But as you get older, certainly if you're over 40, even if you see a fetal heartbeat and you've got threatened abortion symptoms, the risk goes up to about 40% of miscarriage still. So it is age-related, and I think the age of the patient is probably more important than the actual size of the subchorionic bleed. In practice, we're going to treat them like any other threatened abortion that we don't see a subchorionic bleed. We're going to advise them the same way, tell them what to watch for, tell them the risks, perhaps percentages, if we're confident. Let's move on to the management of patients with spontaneous abortion. Let's say you've got a stable patient with a spontaneous miscarriage. They can be treated expectantly or medically with misoprostol or surgically with a DNC. What kind of factors do you consider when trying to figure out what treatment to recommend for your stable patients with spontaneous abortion? 
I, I think this is influenced by a lot of factors, not the least of which is consultant preference and the culture and the, the place where you're actually working. I think it, it varies a lot from, from place to place. And it's evolved a lot over time. Certainly expectant and medical management clearly have a role in management of these patients. In spite of the fact that we know from the evidence in the literature that there is a higher risk of, of bleeding and incomplete abortion uh, with both of these methods compared to the surgical treatment. But I think that we've seen an evolution, at least where I'm working over the years, away from managing these patients surgically and, and giving most patients a trial of expectant or, or medical therapy first to see how they respond to that uh, rather than uh, taking them to the operating room or subjecting them to the risks of a general anesthetic and, and so forth in order to have a DNC done. People are conscious of the complications that are associated with that, both from terms of anesthetic risk and the theoretical potential of developing Asherman's phenomenon where you get fibrosis and scarring on the inside of the uterus after a DNC. So expectant and medical management have had a lot more attention paid to them, I think, over recent years. And we know that the majority of uh, patients, even with expected management, will spontaneously pass their tissue, although the timing of that is really quite variable. It may be anywhere from a couple weeks, it may be up to a month and a half before they actually pass that tissue. And that's one thing that I think influences women's decisions on what they want to do. A lot of patients, I think, don't like the idea of that degree of uncertainty in terms of just waiting for something to happen. So medical management, uh, I think, has become a lot more popular as a result of that. And specifically, that's uh, mesoprostol uh, being used to induce passage of the tissue out of the uterus. And you know, this is a, a prostaglandin-type uh, drug. And uh, traditionally, what we've done with this is uh, vaginal tablets that are inserted. And this will cause uterine contraction and encourage the patient to pass the tissue out. There's different regimes out there in the literature in terms of the, the dose and even the, the route. Uh, as I mentioned, at our place, we uh, tend to use this intravaginally. We use 800 micrograms, so it's uh, four of the 200 microgram tablets inserted high up in the vagina. Often in the emergency department, we'll do that ourselves under, under speculum exam and, and place the tablets up there. If you've ever done that, you know it's sometimes a little bit challenging. They're, they're slippery little tablets, and when they get wet, they're, they're hard to place and they're hard to get stuck up in the right spot. But uh, this is a, a fairly effective uh, means of, uh, of inducing a passage of tissue. It works probably about 70 or 80% of the time. Some estimates are as high as uh, 85% for this. It's important to, to have a discussion with your patient about how this actually works though. They have to understand that they are going to bleed heavily with this and they are going to get pain and cramping in association with it. Uh, so they need to plan things accordingly, that they're going to be at home, that they've maybe got somebody around to help themselves out, uh, being sure that the patients have some analgesics to take if they get bad cramping, uh, I think is a, is a good idea. For some people, over-the-counter uh, acetaminophen or ibuprofen is fine, but often we end up prescribing them something a little bit stronger, a few tablets of oxycodone to take if they need it. There's certainly a failure rate that is associated with this, 
Most of the time, if we opt to treat patients with mesoprostol out of the emergency room, we also send them home with an additional dose and tell them that if they don't get any effect uh, after the first 24 hours, that they can by themselves insert the, the tablets that we've provided for them in the vagina and wait and see. And, and if they don't get progress with that, we've generally arranged some follow-up for them so that uh, they can be reassessed again uh, for further management. Patients need to know that if they do offer the medical management, uh, although the bleeding is often heavy at the start, they'll usually continue to bleed for up to two weeks, and that's not uncommon uh, after the, the medical management. They shouldn't be using tampons afterwards. They shouldn't be having intercourse in that time as well. There's some risk that the, the os may be open uh, as well. And then, of course, the, the last management is surgical, and that's DNC, and obviously we're going to need to involve our gynecologic consultants in order to arrange that. Dr. Claybo is now going to add a few more comments about the use of mesoprostol in miscarriages. We also are using this drug in retained products, patients that come in with some tissue left over, an incomplete abortion, for example, uh, similarly to how we use it in the missed abortions as well. And what we're also trying, and I haven't tried it myself, but my obstetrical colleagues are using it now. They're using the oral form instead of the vaginal form. They're actually giving the capsules orally. And the same dose and same follow-up instructions as mentioned, and they're finding it uh, works just as well. In fact, it works so well, they're advising that no pregnant patient should be on this drug in their pregnancy if they're taking it for some other reasons, such as uh, peptic ulcer disease. We talked about the success rate uh, versus DNC, and yes, it's not as good. And I think they found that if you give it a little bit later, there's a little bit less success as the pregnancies farther along, past 10 to 12 weeks, for example, you'll have a greater failure rate than you would at an earlier stage of pregnancy. Okay, so we, we've talked about the expectant medical and surgical management of patients with spontaneous abortion. We haven't mentioned so far the sort of psychological counseling for these patients because in my experience some of these patients they're obviously traumatized by just the news that they're having a miscarriage. What kind of pearls can you give us about how to manage the psychological trauma that some of these women may have? Uh, So I think this is really important. I mean our our discharge conversations with patients when we're when we're ready to, to send them home are always an important part of every emergency department visit. And I think in particular in, in this case, because it, it tends to be so fraught with emotion that it, it really can be quite traumatic for the patients. It's also an area where, as I think we've alluded to already, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about what causes this and, and so on. And I think this is really a, an opportunity for us to provide some good education for the patient, their partners, and so forth, and trying to leave some of the uh, emotional suffering that they're they're having around this. Uh, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that there's often a lot of guilt associated with uh, with a miscarriage. Many patients worry that there's something that they did that caused this, and it's important for us to emphasize that there really isn't any cause in the overwhelming majority of circumstances, and usually it's nature's way of taking care of a pregnancy that probably wasn't going along properly anyways. So reassuring the patient that this was not because of uh, something that they ate or drank or lifted something heavy or had an argument with somebody is really important to relieve some of the guilt And that can be true both for the patient and sometimes for partners as well. And I've even found that sometimes this works in both directions. Sometimes uh, the partner will blame the the woman and sometimes the woman will blame the partner for some of these things that, that happen. 
I think we also need to uh, acknowledge that there can be very real grief associated with this. And again, I think there's big variation in this. So some patients seem to approach this very matter-of-factly and uh, pick up and carry on quite quickly after this. And other patients really do go through a very typical grieving process that can take uh, some time to get through. And we've got to uh, acknowledge that that can be a, a completely normal process for many people. It's also an opportunity for us to reassure patients about future pregnancies that the simple fact that they had a miscarriage doesn't necessarily mean that they're at higher risk of having miscarriages in the future. Obviously, there's some caveats with that. Uh, patients who have had multiple miscarriages, and three is often the, the number that we look at, so three miscarriages without a successful pregnancy, it's probably time to start investigating and looking to see if there's other reasons around that. But for majority of the patients that we see, this is a, this is a one-off event, and uh, we should be taking the chance to tell them that the, this doesn't necessarily affect future pregnancies. And it's a good idea, if possible, I think, to have the partner in the room when you're having these conversations, because as I mentioned, there's sometimes a lot of misconceptions that can go back and forth between a patient and their partner. It's also a time when I often tell patients about how frequent miscarriage really is. Most people don't realize that so many of the conceptions that actually happen end up resulting in miscarriages is probably up to a quarter of uh, clinical pregnancies and probably even higher than that for subclinical pregnancies. And that can help uh, relieve some of the, that burden of guilt that, uh, that people feel. I think it's also an area where it's a, a good reminder for us to be careful about the, the language that we use when we're talking to these patients. Uh, it always makes me cringe a little bit when I hear people talking about somebody with a six or seven week pregnancy talking about the baby. And these, these are terms that I think we should try and avoid and use terms like embryo and fetus rather than a baby. It's just got very different, different emotional connotations, I think, for people. And then the last counseling piece that uh, I always make sure I discuss with people is when they should resume intercourse again or try again to start having a baby. And our general recommendation is that they wait for at least one period until they start to try and conceive again. It's not that anything dire happens if they do conceive before that period, but it makes the start point very uncertain and creates some clinical difficulty sometimes for us. And to relieve some of the guilt, I tried to Tell them about some of the studies have shown that a lot of these miscarriages are due to chromosomal abnormalities, particularly the early miscarriages, and that it's truly not their fault. It's obviously a pregnancy that was not meant to be in many ways. Uh, I, I think the one other particular thing that bears some mention is the, the question of intercourse around the time of a, of a threatened abortion. And again, it's an area where the literature suggests to us that there probably is no relationship between intercourse and whether or not they go on to, to miscarry. But psychologically, there's a huge burden associated with this. And, and uh, if they happen to have intercourse and then she goes on and miscarries in any reasonable time proximity to that, the, they will never have intercourse again when she is pregnant. So it's uh, something that is, is a good conversation to, to have with people at that point. Let's go back and continue the case now. This is our 34-year-old woman, Gravita 2, Para 1. She's now at about 12 weeks gestation, and she presents again to your emergency department a week after her initial visit with severe, crampy, lower abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and anorexia. She missed her follow-up appointment, 
and didn't get an ultrasound in the interim. She denies fever, chills, cough, dysuria, or headaches. In the ED, she was found to have a fever of 38.9. On exam, she had abdominal tenderness across the entire lower abdomen, greater on the right than on the left. Laboratory results showed a white blood cell count of 23 with a neutrophil predominance, normal liver function tests, urinalysis, and electrolytes. A vaginal ultrasound showed a non-viable intrauterine pregnancy at 12 weeks gestation. She was diagnosed with a septic abortion. She was resuscitated, started on PIPTAS in the ED, and was admitted to obstetrics. She had a DNC two days later. Unfortunately, she had a prolonged, complicated hospital course, but ended up going home two weeks later. Dr. Claybo, despite the fact that septic abortion is relatively rare in Canada, it still does occur, and so we should know a little bit about it. What are the most common causes of septic abortion, and what are some of the clues to its early recognition so that we don't miss it and that we can start treatment in a timely manner? In this patient that you're giving the case about, it's probably a patient that went and tried to do her own abortion, probably instrumentation of some sort, and obviously entered uh, something that was non-sterile and caused set up the whole nidus of infection. I would say it's rare, but it's probably easily recognizable in terms of its clinical setting. You know, the fever, the tachycardia, the septic picture, the exquisite tenderness, possible discharge. I don't think it's going to be easily missed in the emergency department if it presents. It's going to be like a fulminant case of PID or perhaps endometritis and probably treated with the same antibiotic coverage. And that's because it can be a mixed infection, often staph, maybe some gram-negatives, some anaerobes. Okay. So this patient with a septic abortion obviously requires obstetrical consultation and admission to hospital. While the vast majority of patients with non-septic abortion don't require immediate consultation, there are a subset who do. So which patients with abortion in general require immediate obstetrical consultation in the emergency department? So the the most obvious category for that is the patient who's really bleeding very, very heavily uh, in in the emergency department or has become hemodynamically unstable. Uh, You're you're also going to think about this in the patient who's bleeding moderately, who's already anemic, who you think may get into trouble with more conservative or elective management as well. If you have signs or symptoms of infection, as with this case that we just talked about, you're going to pay close attention to that. Uh, I think you've got to take into consideration sometimes comorbidities as well if the patient happens to be immune compromised for any reason or they were high risk as a, as a pregnant patient to begin with that's somebody who you are more likely to get a, a more urgent uh, consultation while the patient's there at their index visit And then the last thing I think to think about is whether or not the patient has the ability to follow up. Again, if it's one of our marginalized patient populations who's not going to be able to comply with follow-up for ultrasounds or blood tests or clinic appointments, that's somebody where you may just have to sort of pull the trigger and and get the obstetric consultation in the emergency room. And you, you may end up being a little bit more aggressive just for social reasons in order to manage this appropriately. And do you make any distinction between threatened, incomplete, and missed abortion in terms of who requires more aggressive management, assuming that, let's say, the, the bleeding is the same and they, they present with the same sort of clinical picture? Well, there are theoretical risks. We didn't address this with the expectant management of the missed abortions, of the DIC risk of anything that stays in there with dead fetal tissue. I think that's so relatively rare. We, we don't think about that much anymore when it comes to the decision tree. My understanding when I started training 
was that a missed abortion was more dangerous in terms of potential complications than a threatened or an incomplete abortion. How true is that anymore? What, do, what does the literature say and is there really any difference? The things that we worry about are patients developing infection or DIC in sort of the worst case scenario if they're carrying around that non-viable fetal tissue for a long period of time. And there was I think some physiologic reasoning that went into that, which sounds quite reasonable, but I think over the years, the literature has kind of caught up with this and has shown us that, in fact, these patients really don't get into trouble, even when they are carrying non-viable tissue around for fairly prolonged periods of time, weeks at a time. And so it, it has kind of informed our decision making and let us manage these patients not quite so urgently compared to what the traditional teaching has been in the past. You might compare it to carrying around the kidney stone that people used to think was going to damage the kidney if you keep it in there for weeks at a time. And almost in the same way you're saying that with expectant management, Dr. Dushinsky was saying that you can wait up to six weeks for passage and really have negligible risk to the patient. That's a great analogy. Mm -hmm. So let's say the same patient with our spontaneous abortion, let's say they came back a few days later and came crashing into your resuscitation room, hemodynamically unstable, bleeding like a fire hose. How would you manage that situation? When, when that patient comes back with uh, all the information that we've got on her, we're thinking about really two different things simultaneously. First, she's in shock, and is it shock because she's hypovolemic? Is it shock because she's septic? Or is it a combination of both of those things? And regardless, we're going to have to manage that very, very aggressively. So as you mentioned, the patients go into the recess room. We're doing the two large bore IVs, O2 monitors, Foley catheter, all that sort of stuff. And then you've got to really aggressively resuscitate this patient. Uh, As uh, I think has already been alluded to, you've got to think about DIC in this patient as well. So with your initial blood work that you're sending off, in addition to your standard stuff, your CBC lights, BUN, creatinine, you're going to want to get your D-dimers and fibrin split products products and fibrinogen and and so forth. In addition to your HCG and your LFTs and, and so forth, you might want a venous gas and a lactate and a patient who's this sick as well. And then, of course, you have to address the fact that she's uh, bleeding like a hose, as you as you described it. So you've got to resuscitate this, uh, this patient pretty aggressively. You're going to start crystalloid. This is absolutely the type of patient where I would be calling for uncross-matched uh, O-negative uh, blood for her and would even consider, uh, depending on really how bad she looked when she came in, uh, initiating a massive transfusion protocol if you have one in place at your institution as well, because you may have up needing large volumes of uh, of blood products in order to resuscitate somebody like this. Uh, You can also consider some other things for control of the bleeding as well. You can start some oxytocin on the patient. Our OB-GYN service uh, has been using tranexamic acid, in fact, uh, intravenously in these obstetric patients who have uh, heavy bleeding as well. And so you can uh, give a a gram of that uh, intravenously at sort of 100 milligram per minute uh, dose. That's that's an off-label use, but uh, there is some experience with that now. Ultimately, it's really going to be about, again, source control. So if you still got tissue in there, if you can do a pelvic in the eMERGE and take some tissue out, sometimes that's going to help things. But oftentimes, this is going to be up to our surgical colleagues in order to manage this. Patient may need to go to the OR. 
certainly there's some other options if the, the bleeding is really profuse for control, they can consider uterine artery embolization and some other sort of interventional radiology type procedures, but uh, that's uh, not, a, not a decision that we as the emergency physician are likely to be making on our own, that we're going to need our consultants involved. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's uh, oxytocin. If you could just run through first how you would dose that in the emergency situation. Sure. So, you know, traditionally the oxytocin was sort of what's uh, used around the time of labor as well. You'd put uh, 20 units of it in a liter of normal saline and you'd start it at 100 or 125 cc's an hour and see how the patient uh, reacted. And the patient who's much sicker and much more unstable, uh, we tend to start at higher doses. So we'll often mix a higher concentration, 40 or even 60 units in a, in a liter and uh, start that at a, a little bit of a higher dose. There are some risks associated with that in terms of uh, the intensity of the uterine contraction and the stage of the pregnancy that the person could be at in terms of uh, risk of uterine rupture and so forth. But uh, generally speaking, you're probably safe if you start with uh, 40 units in a liter at uh, 150 or 200 cc's an hour. And be aware, of course, that that's going to cause some increased pain for the patient uh, as well. And you may need to manage that as things go along. Okay, and you mentioned the tranexamic acid. Could you use those together? Like you're throwing the typewriter at this patient, yeah, get the oxytocin a, in one line, get the tranexamic acid in another line? Absolutely. This yeah. uh, so Somebody who comes in this sick, it's really a, a full-core press. So you're, you're going all out to try and stabilize her so that uh, the surgeons can do something definitive. The oxytocin, which is the traditional agents, I think with time the trend is going to be more away from that and towards the transaminic acid for the ones that are truly exsanguinating in front of you, much like it's become in trauma patients and other patients that may be circling the drain to that stage of bleeding. It's definitely an effective drug that we found useful for dysfunctional bleeding or non-pregnant patients or in oral form. So I think this will become probably the modus operandi for these patients that are literally crashing in front of you before the operation. Okay, and then the next thing is, what about the role of packing to temporize until they go to the OR? Is there any role for that? We still see it done. Our our gynecologists will still come down and, and stick packs in the vagina. If you think about that physiologically, it's not one of those things that ever made a tremendous amount of sense to me. And in this particular patient where we're worried about, again, a septic abortion, Sticking a pack up in there, tamponading up that source of infection probably doesn't sound like the the best idea. So again, sometimes they'll try this as a temporizing measure pending doing something more definitive, but uh, I'm not sure that there's really great evidence for that in in this type of circumstance. Dr. Dushensky, you had mentioned if you see tissue at the os, for a patient who's crashing, is really bleeding out, and you can see tissue in the os, I'm always unsure whether to pull the tissue or not because I'm thinking, well, that's just going to release the floodgates. Is that more likely to clamp down the uterus and slow down the bleeding or is it more likely to increase the bleeding? Yeah, I, I, I think that the preponderance of the, the practice patterns that I've seen is if you can see tissue there, get it out of there. Once you do, you can let the, the body's natural mechanisms uh, achieve some hemostasis. So I, I think if you see it, try and get it out. There, there's certain rare exceptions, cervical ectopics and molars and that sort of thing where that may be an exception. But I, I think uh, as a general rule, if you see the tissue, take it out. And this is probably the one reason for doing pelvics in the emergency for somebody that's having symptoms of what may be a more inevitable abortion. And this is why I tell the trainees as well that this is your chance perhaps to speed up the process by seeing the tissue, removing it, watching the patient, perhaps saving a DNC on this patient.
Let's move on to our second case. Our second case is out of a 30-year-old female who's rushed into your resuscitation room with a blood pressure of 75 over 55 and a heart rate of 58 with a small amount of vaginal bleeding and acute lower abdominal pain. Two large bore IVs are placed with full open normal saline running. She's alert and able to talk. Her belly is diffusely tender with peritoneal signs. A bedside ED ultrasound shows an IUP and a moderate amount of free fluid. The patient's blood pressure improves a bit after the bolus and you get further history. She's a G2A1 who's undergoing IVF treatment. She's eight weeks by dates and has an unremarkable past medical history. The obstetrical team is called. Eventually the patient is taken to the OR for an emergency laparotomy where it is discovered that she has a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. So let's talk a little bit about ectopic pregnancy. Ectopic pregnancy is the most common cause of maternal mortality in the first trimester, and the incidence has been increasing steadily since the 1970s, up to about 2% of pregnancies now. Uh, unfortunately, many are still missed on the first initial visit to the emergency department. The good news is that despite it still being the most common cause of mortality in the first trimester, the mortality has been steadily decreasing since the 1970s. The most common site of implantation by far is the fallopian tube, but an ectopic can occur just about anywhere in the abdomen, including the ovary and the cervix. So let's talk a little bit about the risk factors for ectopic pregnancy. The risk factors for ectopic pregnancy can be thought of as anything that can potentially damage the fallopian tube, and in order of highest to lowest odds ratio, the risk factors are a previous tubal pregnancy, previous tubal surgery, previous tubal ligation, current IUD use, current infertility treatment, and history of PID. Vaginal douching and cigarette smoking have also been suggested as risk factors. Dr. Dushensky, how important are these risk factors in assessing your pretest probability of an ectopic in a patient with a first trimester bleed? Well, if we sort of look at the, the statistics that we have around this, we know that about half of women who end up having a diagnosed ectopic pregnancy will have one or more of these risk factors, which of course means that half of them don't have any of the risk factors either. And looking at the other side of the coin, about a quarter of the patients with threatened abortions will have one of these risk factors for ectopic pregnancies as well. So while the risk factor I think may influence our pretest probability a little bit as part of our overall gestalt assessment, by themselves, they, they really lack the power to help us differentiate these patients in terms of an ectopic versus a, a threatened or spontaneous abortion. Okay. And besides the risk factors, what else in the history do you look for when considering an ectopic? So bleeding is certainly common in these patients. Oftentimes it tends to be not quite as heavy as you what, what you might often see with uh, other forms of spontaneous abortion. Often it's uh, less than what the patient would usually report for their, for their typical menstrual flow. There are some exceptions to that, uh, certainly as well, depending on the location of the ectopic, uh, and uh, occasionally the bleeding can be very, very brisk in, in certain types of ectopic pregnancy. So again, that by itself doesn't necessarily help you differentiate these things. 
pain is very common with the ectopic pregnancies, but certainly not universal. And even the pattern of pain can be quite variable. Typically, it is fairly persistent and gets gradually worse over time, or sometimes all of a sudden worse if, there, if there's a rupture. But there is still a subset of patients who can have quite intermittent pain as well. And one of the other uh, elements of history that uh, is kind of a, a classic emergency medicine thing that we always need to keep in the back of our mind is the patient who presents who has had a syncopal event, who is pregnant, you always need to consider the diagnosis of, of ectopic pregnancy. Usually they've got other symptoms along with it, but you have to remember to think about that when you're doing the assessment for them. I agree with Dr. Dushinsky that we have to ignore a lot of the traditional risk factors, although we ask for them, much like we do with an ACS patient, that, but in the setting of the the event, you're still going to kind of take that in context. I think with some of those traditional risk factors that he mentioned, there's a slightly higher chance of ruptured ectopics in those patients that have had PID, previous ectopics, instrumentation, for example, over the ones that have had none of those risk factors. So the risk of ectopic is universal, but the risk of rupture from the ectopic is probably slightly higher in those that subset of risk patients with factors. So in, in medicine, we often talk about classic presentations as well, and uh, everybody gets taught that in medical school and often through residency as well. And then as you come out into practice, you come to realize that classic presentations are often more the exception to the rule than the rule itself. And the classic triad for, uh, for ectopic pregnancy is abdominal pain, mismenses, and, and vaginal bleeding. And we know that uh, up to about a quarter of all patients ultimately diagnosed with ectopic are lacking part of that classic triad as well. So really the risk factors don't help us all that much and you really can't hang your hat on any one factor, although certainly some of them, as mentioned, carry greater weight than others. Okay, so that's all about the history and the risk factors. Let's move on to the physical exam. Dr. Claybo, how can the physical exam help us in determining whether a stable patient with belly pain or vaginal bleeding might have an ectopic pregnancy? Well, over the years, I think I've come to realize that it helps me less and less. So an exam, you're probably going to do a pelvic to see where the source of the pain is. And if you can localize it to one side with some fullness or a mass, then you certainly be more suspicious. But again, you have to remember that most likely what you're feeling is, if you look at the odds ratio, is probably a luteal cyst rather than an ectopic pregnancy. So even your exam can be misleading. We had mentioned earlier about perhaps the uterine size. If it's small for dates, uh, that would be kind of a red flag that would make you think about perhaps a bit more. And some people have used orthostatic drops or postural hypotension as a sign, but in young healthy people, this would be very rare for someone even with a ruptured ectopic. So the physical findings, like the history, like the setting, can be very misleading. Positive findings in conjunction with the more important ways of diagnosing this may help nail the diagnosis, but I find that it's a condition that's easily missed, both with history and physical examination. Okay. And are there any reliable clinical signs for excluding an ectopic pregnancy? Well, only if you're 100% sure that it's an abortion that's happening right in front of you. So if you actually see the tissue coming out, uh, that would be a pretty good sign that what you're seeing is intrauterine pregnancy. My, the case you gave us is one that we all have nightmares about, someone that's got a live intrauterine pregnancy with a heterotopic. So even that, you'd think theoretically you'd have that 1 in 100 risk of uh, having that crossover. So this patient who's presenting the ruptured ectopic pregnancy is hemodynamically unstable. When a patient presents with a ruptured ectopic, we classically think of them presenting with hemodynamic instability, like in this case. What does the literature say about how patients with ruptured ectopics usually present? 
So uh, unfortunately, much like the risk factor and, and physical signs, our presentations in patients with ruptured ectopics often show us that the, the vital signs really don't correlate all that well with the presence of the ectopic or even the degree of blood loss that may have been associated in, in the case of a rupture. And there's evidence in the literature that show up to a fifth of uh, patients with ruptured ectopics may have normal vital signs. And as we've talked about before, there, there is physiologic rationale sometimes for why this happens. If we were to take an analogy of somebody who's going to donate blood and uh, they phlebotomize off a, a half a liter of blood, we wouldn't expect in a young, healthy person with good physiologic reserve for them to really have much in the way of vital sign changes. And these patients are generally young, healthy people with lots of physiologic reserve. So they can compensate for blood loss for quite a significant period of time before they really start manifesting uh, hemodynamic instability. So your heart rate and your blood pressure really are not sensitive indicators of A, whether or not they've got an ectopic or B, whether or not even they've ruptured. Uh, some people have done some work in the literature looking at uh, other physical exam things like looking at a shock index in patients with ruptured ectopics and they have shown that it tends to be higher in those patients but it still lacks the the sensitivity to really uh, allow you to make a clinical judgment just based on that not only that we will see in some patients that rather than attack a cardia they may actually develop a bradycardia in association with blood in their peritoneum like like this patient like, so like this patient right their their blood pressure is in the boots but their their heart rates uh, bradycardic yeah and, and this is called a, a paradoxical bradycardia and certainly there's evidence of this from the the trauma literature as well that when you have blood and irritation in the peritoneal cavity that you sometimes get a a reflex bradycardia instead. So don't let the absence of a tachycardia sway you away from the possible diagnosis of an ectopic if other features of the presentation are suggestive of that. You can get the variety of physical examination findings and vital signs in patients with ectopic. They can have normal vital signs. They can have obvious shock. They can have a low blood pressure, but not tachycardic. So we really do have to keep our feelers out for these patients. Okay, so we've talked about the history and physical exam and when it comes to ectopic pregnancies, and we know that there's nothing on the combination of history physical that we can rule out ectopic with, can help point in certain directions. How can the beta HCG help us when it comes to assessing a patient's likelihood of ectopic? Again, I think the science of diagnosing ectopic is evolving because of the sequential beta HCG and the advent of ultrasound, available ultrasound. And the one hand, the one side of that is the beta, which if you have the luxury of sequential ones, can be a big help, either from the patient's previous visits to their doctor or elsewhere, or perhaps in your own institution. So traditionally, we've been using a 48-hour or 72-hour follow-up. And because not all normal pregnancies will double in 48 hours, some people have said that 72 is slightly better because there may be a, a range of normal for healthy women. And so if you want to catch 99% of them, you'd probably use the 72-hour difference in presentations to measure the beta-ACGs and see if it's doubling. Having that is a bit reassuring because most likely it means it's a viable, the start of a viable intrauterine pregnancy. The non-rise within that time frame or a decline usually means an abnormal pregnancy, either some form of miscarriage or perhaps the possibility of an ectopic pregnancy. 
There are some ectopics that may double quickly. We, Dr. Duchinsky mentioned that early pregnancy people double quicker than they do later on, and that may be also true for the ectopic where they can masquerade like a normal pregnancy. But if there's any doubt, you want to keep in mind that you should get an ultrasound to confirm your hunch at some point. So go along with the doubling of the beta HCG, you want to see an ultrasound showing an IUP or evidence of an IUP at some stage just to nail a diagnosis. So the non-viable ones, certainly if they're not doubling and they're symptomatic, these would be a, a red flag that these patients are high risk for ectopic pregnancy or other form of miscarriages. So that's how much we rely on the beta CG at the current practice. How about the actual level of the beta HCG? Is there any beta below which we can rule out ectopic or above which we can rule out ectopic? Well, below which is probably no below which we can. A lot of them tend to be low, lower than normal, uh, in absolute numbers if you're getting the first value for the initial visit. Uh, often a thousand in that range or slightly higher, but it can go up pretty high. Traditionally thought if it's over 50,000, then it's less likely it's going to be an ectopic. They rarely reach that number without some sort of symptom or rupture or some intercurrent event. Another possibility for somebody that comes in with a gestational sac, but no yolk sac and no fetal pole, but with a level of beta that's above the discriminatory, the traditional discriminatory value of 3,3500, could be the fact of a, a twin pregnancy, which we don't have a good handle on how these present and we don't have a good cut off for any sort of discriminatory betas on these patients. So that's why the even more uh, reason to get the second ultrasound done with transvaginal approach or a sequential ultrasound if the beta is low. So I think one of the pitfalls as well when we're thinking about ectopic pregnancies is to keep in mind that patients with very low beta HCGs can have ectopics as well. The idea that if it's very low that you don't need to pursue it or you don't need to do an ultrasound is really just not true. And if we look at the statistics on this, there's studies out there that show that up to 40% of ectopics may have an HCG less than a, a thousand and, and quite a number even have HCGs less than 500. So the low HCG should not be falsely reassuring to you and you shouldn't let uh, our radiology colleagues dissuade you from doing an ultrasound in this patient. Uh, they're used to thinking of it in terms of am I likely to see an intrauterine pregnancy but if your clinical concern is ectopic pregnancy the ultrasound should be done regardless of the HCG level because uh, it can be quite low and still have a fairly significant mass of ectopic there and you need to find out about that. Just like we mentioned earlier in the talk as well, really a, a single HCG measurement can't exclude a, an ectopic pregnancy or even predict the, the risk of rupture unless it's very, very low, probably sort of in the normal range, less than 10 or even less than 5. And in terms of the beta HCG, is there a difference between patient with a stable ectopic versus a ruptured ectopic? If you're looking in terms of decision regarding referring that patient on the first visit with a low beta, I think if they're clinically stable and you've got a beta that's questionable and you have an outside concern of an ectopic because you can't see the injury during pregnancy, I think the practice has been that you can safely send them home and bring them back the next day for their follow-up ultrasound. You can have ectopics at any range of betas. You can have ruptured any range of betas. But I think intuitively, we think that if it's the lower the beta, the lower the chance you can have a rupture with serious symptoms, although it hasn't been fully proven. Our gestalt is that these patients are probably safe to go home in the lower ranges to bring back for follow-up 
if they're clinically stable in the first visit. Let's move on to the ultrasound now. Dr. Claybo, can you review for us what you're looking for on bedside ED ultrasound for patients who you might suspect have an ectopic? Well, to sum it up, I'm looking for a intrauterine pregnancy to minimize the chance of that being an ectopic. Uh, the case that was presented is, as I said, one of those horror cases that we don't consider too often, the heterotopic and someone with a known live IUP on ultrasound. And certainly if a patient presents in shock and is hypotensive, you're going to be taken to the OR regardless of what your assumption is. And it may be from some other source. They may have been bleeding from a cyst, who knows, but it could be a topic as well, a rare case. I work in a center that's one of the larger infertility centers in York Region, which is Markham Stouffville, and I asked our colleagues if they're concerned about this heterotopic risk of 1 in 100, which we hear quoted for infertility treatments. And it doesn't really change their management so much, even though it reduces the risk from the traditional 1 in 30,000 in someone who's not on infertility. It's quite a reduction. I'm still honing in to find evidence of a live intrauterine pregnancy at best, or at least a definitive intrauterine pregnancy, which means a gestational sac with a yolk sac within it. If I see that in a stable patient, I'm pretty comfortable that it's not ectopic. It's, I know I'm uh, 99% sure it's not ectopic in almost all cases. So that would be what I'm looking for. I have I sometimes will check for free fluid, depends on the stability of the patient. It can be a lot of physiological free fluid in the cul-de-sac. So even that may not be any evidence of rupture, it may just be a normal physiology in, in the woman, especially if she's had a history of luteal cyst during the pregnancies. Certainly larger amounts of fluid in the Morrison's pouch or the left upper quadrant would portend either a huge rupture of a large cyst or a chance of a hemodynamically unstable ectopic. And if I saw signs of free fluid in those quadrants, I'd be more concerned in the setting of uh, the presentation. Again, if, if I see a live injury during pregnancy and that, then this person's probably gonna need OB consultation, probably OR regardless, on that rare chance it is a heterotopic. But seeing, not seeing that and seeing an uh, injury during pregnancy that's diagnostic, this to me would make the diagnosis that it's not ectopic. What about a pseudo-gestational sac? How can that lead us astray in, in this kind of uh, situation? It easily leads you astray. I think when I was just starting out in ultrasound, I was misdiagnosing many gestational sacs, which were truly pseudo-gestational sacs. And uh, I think with the training that people are getting now in ultrasound, they're realizing that can be extremely misleading. So pseudo-gestational sacs can look exactly like gestational sacs. The only thing is they probably reach a maximum diameter of maybe 10 to 15 millimeters, unlike a, a normal gestational sac would. And they can be seen in the setting of ectopic. They can also be seen in different types of hormonal therapy. And it would be a great disservice to send a patient home with that, seeing just a simple sac in the uterus that looks like it may be gestational, but you're not sure. So just be aware that it's a common finding in ectopic. It can be dangerous to send that patient home or misdiagnose them. And uh, if you see the sac like that, most of the time we're going to get confirmatory study with the transvaginal ultrasound anyway. And along with that, they're going to be able to see the adnexa well. I'm avoiding discussing the adnexa because I think in our hands, it's fraught with danger. Uh, there's the rare case where you see a definitive intratubal pregnancy separate from the uterus. And that's the, the skill of juxtaposition of the bladder with the uterus when you're doing ultrasound, that you want to make sure that what you're looking at is actually in the uterus to make it the uterine pregnancy. And that's the other pitfall of ultrasound sometimes. You, what you're looking at may be a large tubal pregnancy, has been mentioned, which is fraught with uh, rupture risks and hemodynamic instability. 
And as far as training our doctors, I always have them start with the longitudinal view, which is where you try to get the, on the transabdominal approach, where you try to see the bladder in juxtaposition with the uterus. And that gives you a hint that what you're looking at is actually in the uterus and not outside the uterus. So let's just stop to review here and go over how to confirm an intrauterine pregnancy on bedside ED ultrasound. You need to fulfill three criteria. That is, you need to see a decidual reaction, a gestational sac, and a yolk sac. And remember that you need to be sure that what you're looking at is the uterus. In order to do this, as Dr. Klebo said, you need to see the uterus in juxtaposition with the bladder, which is seen most easily on the longitudinal view. Secondly, beware of the pseudo-gestational sac. This can look like a true gestational sac, but it's sometimes associated with an ectopic pregnancy, so you can be fooled. To differentiate a pseudo-gestational sac from a true gestational sac, remember that a pseudo-gestational sac rarely will grow more than 10 to 15 millimeters. So if you see a gestational sac that's less than 15 millimeters, you need to confirm with a transvaginal ultrasound in the radiology department. Thirdly, do a fast to look for free fluid, keeping in mind that a small amount of fluid in the pelvis can be physiological and normal. Once you're sure about all of these criteria, then you can say with at least 99% certainty that there's no ectopic, even in the patient who's undergoing fertility treatment. If you don't see a definitive IUP with 100% certainty fulfilling the three criteria, then you must call it a non-diagnostic ultrasound and go on to have a formal transvaginal ultrasound in the radiology department. So be liberal calling your ultrasounds non-diagnostic or else you could run into trouble. Trouble in mind, I'm blue But I won't be blue always Cause the sun's gonna shine in my back door someday Now all this talk of the history and physical not being able to rule out an ectopic and then even if you add the beta in there you still can't rule out an ectopic and that in the rare case, even if you see an IUP on your bedside ultrasound, you might not be able to rule out an ectopic. I'm afraid that we're, we're putting across the point that every patient who comes in who could be pregnant, who might have a bit of vaginal bleeding, has to have an ultrasound. Which patients who present with pelvic pain or vaginal bleeding in early pregnancy do not need a formal ultrasound? For me in practice, the ones that I can diagnostically see intrauterine pregnancy with a fetal heartbeat, I do not always send for formal ultrasound because I'm quite convinced that they've probably got a little bit of early first trimester bleeding, not an ectopic, and can be followed up at their regular scheduled times. So if I see a confirmed positive, then I'm happy. Even if you see one that's early stages with a yolk sac, they can still probably be followed up and just given instructions when to return to the emergency department because you've confirmed an intrauterine pregnancy. But the ones that are questionable, even those I'd probably edge more towards a formal ultrasound because they might be able to see more in the transvaginal view the second day and confirm even greater viability than what I'm seeing on the initial visit. So in practice, I'm sending a lot for formal, but in reality, I think in reality, the only ones I'm sending home with no formal follow-up is the ones where I see the definitive live intrauterine pregnancy with the heart beating greater than 100 beats a minute. You're right. We seem to be giving the impression that every patient who comes in is some kind of 
horrible disaster waiting to happen. And in practice, I mean, that ends up not being the case. In a, in a large portion of patients, we do see definitive, quite definitive intrauterine pregnancy in patients that don't have a worrisome clinical presentation or high risk factors or abnormal physical findings or high risk findings on their vital signs or physical exam. So I follow very much the, the same practice pattern where if they've got a definitive live intrauterine gestation and no other worrisome features in their in their presentation, I will send them home for a routine follow-up with their own caregivers. We've talked about ED bedside ultrasound versus the radiology department formal ultrasound. What does the literature say about how good we are in the emergency department with our ultrasounds compared to the radiology department? It depends a little bit on what you're talking about. If we're talking about the presence of an intrauterine pregnancy, I think we do that with a, with a high specificity. I think when it comes to absence of an intrauterine pregnancy that we see on bedside ultrasound, that changes the game and it just tells us that we need a formal study in those cases. And there is at least one paper in the literature out there that was published last year that looks specifically at ED ultrasounds where they saw or didn't see the presence of an intrauterine pregnancy. And they actually didn't see intrauterine pregnancies with HCG levels of over 3,000 in about a third of the patients that they studied in that case that subsequently were confirmed to have an intrauterine pregnancy on a formal study. So I think it, it reemphasizes the point that of how we need to use this. We need to be asking fairly binary questions. Is there an intrauterine pregnancy or not? If we don't see it, then we need to move on and get the formal study. I think if you do not see anything in the uterus, you're safely saying that you're not sure and that there is a risk of ectopic. Uh, you may see it a day or two later. You may see it on the second visit with a doubling of the beta in the patient who's stable. And I think in most cases now, we are realizing that what we're not seeing doesn't necessarily disprove the fact of injury during pregnancy, but we definitely are more cautious in those patients where the beta is high and we're not seeing anything in the uterus. I think discriminatory values. We used to teach our residents and we also used to learn that at a level about 3,000 to 3,500 on transabdominal, we should see a gestational sac. And if we don't, then we should be scared of an ectopic. And as Dr. Dushinsky says, that's becoming very variable now that you may see normal pregnancies with ACG in very low ranges, less than that, maybe in the 2,000 range. And you may see empty sacs, even size 3,000 upwards, in some cases to 5,000. And you can't rely on the discriminatory values the way we used to. I think trans-badge exam, it's still pretty good around 1,500. At 1,500, you usually will see some evidence of a pregnancy, abnormal or normal. But trans-abdominal, there seems to be a widening range now of what the discriminatory value is. I think in the stable patient where you don't see anything in the uterus and you've got a relatively low beta, the safest thing is to do is just to check the doubling, look on a second ultrasound. If you've got the capability of bringing them back to your department, doing it there during the day, that's fine. If not, you need to schedule them. I think that's the, the safe on all the ones that you are in the early ranges and non-diagnostic findings. Dr. Dushinsky, what is a corneal ectopic pregnancy and why is it important for us to know about? So the, these are a unique particular subset of ectopic pregnancies, and they, and they are quite rare. They only account for maybe a couple of percent of all the actual ectopic pregnancies that are diagnosed. 
But these happen when a fertilized uh, ovum ends up implanting in a section of the tube that's actually within the muscular wall of the myometrium of the uterus. So it's in what's called the, the cornua of the uterus. And what's important about these is that because of that location, these can actually progress much further along and grow much larger before they'll actually become symptomatic. These are also ectopics that are much more likely to develop a fetal heart rate, so a normal developing fetus within that area. And they may be actually mistaken, even on formal ultrasound, for intrauterine pregnancies, depending on the operator skill of them, because they are so close to being actually within the uterus. Because they tend to get much larger before they present, if they do rupture, they can be really catastrophic. It's a very vascular area, and so patients can really bleed extremely vigorously. And they're also uh, somewhat more complicated in terms of management in that they're often less amenable to uh, medical therapy and they're much more challenging uh, surgical cases in terms of trying to preserve the uterus and the tube the way that our gynecology colleagues like to try and do. The other name for these is probably becoming more common is interstitial because the corneal terminology is based on a cornea of a bicornate uterus. And so if you see the term interstitial pregnancy, this is probably replacing this type of pregnancy in, in the late term. Let's move on to the treatment options for ectopic pregnancies. Dr. Claybell, can you review for us the treatment options and how the obstetricians decide between the different treatment options for ectopic? So in terms of treatment, uh, it used to be that all cases would go to the operating room and have surgery done. Nowadays, there's a variety of different treatments for ectopic, depending on the size and stage. And the expected treatment is for the very small ectopics, often betas under 200, that are not increasing. If anything, it may be decreasing or plateauing. And these will be monitored to see the beta ACG drop down to the below normal range over time. And these are the ones that are self-involuting ectopic pregnancies. The other option is for the use of methotrexate, which is a, a folate acid antagonist that stops growing cells, rapidly growing tissues including pregnancy. And so because of that, it can affect other organs as well. So if you've got a subset of patients that have no bone marrow problems or liver problems and have a what they consider a stable ectopic pregnancy, both clinically and in size, and this is often used by a mass under three to four centimeters in the tube, as visualized a beta ACG under 5,000 and no fetal cardiac activity in the ectopic. These are the ones now that are given consideration. This could be all ranges of ectopics, including the rare interstitial one we just mentioned as well. They'll give methotrexate and follow them up in their clinics. And I think by default, because we're seeing more of this, we're actually becoming a little bit more knowledgeable too about some of the sequelae of these and follow-ups because they appear back in the emergency department. So just to review the indications for methotrexate treatment for stable ectopic pregnancies are that the patient needs to be clinically stable and that the ectopic mass needs to be less than three to four centimeters, the beta HCG less than 5,000, and no fetal cardiac activity noted on the ultrasound. And then the ones that don't fit into the, either of these categories would be the ones that are, would need operation, either laparoscopic removal. Going back to the methotrexate, we are using this more and more, so we should know more and more about it. Dr. Dushensky, what are some of the contraindications to methotrexate, and how does that play into the ED management of these patients? So uh, the, this is a, a chemotherapeutic agent. It's not a 
particularly benign drugs. So there, there's a fairly long laundry list of, uh, of contraindications for it, which most of the time don't apply to our patients because they tend to be young and healthy, but we do need to know what they are. Any patient with a blood dyscrasia, you really shouldn't be giving this to because while methotrexate affects all those rapidly developing and dividing cells in the trophoblast, it affects rapidly dividing and developing cells elsewhere in the body as well, including our bone marrow. So patients who are neutropenic, significantly anemic, or thrombocytopenic probably shouldn't be getting this. Similarly, if they're immune compromised to begin with, it may not be the best idea to add methotrexate on top of that. As we already mentioned, if they're hemodynamically unstable, they're, they're not a candidate for it. If the patient's breastfeeding, though, that's uh, something that's important to remember to ask. This will get into breast milk, so you don't want a patient breastfeeding if they've gotten methotrexate. And because uh, this drug is metabolized by the liver and excreted by the kidneys, they need to have normal uh, renal and liver function as well. And some people will also include uh, active peptic ulcer disease or active uh, significant pulmonary disease as well. Just because of the mucosal effects that methotrexate can have, it will increase the risk of complications in patients who have those conditions. And then the, the last thing I suppose is of course the ability of the patient to actually follow up because these patients do need very close follow-up. Another thing they advise too is just to stop taking their folate, which is your substrate you're trying to break down. And it's one of the few instances where they might tell you to avoid strenuous exercise and or intercourse just for the risk of rupture in these patients. Okay, so assuming that the obstetricians are actually managing the patients who are being considered for methotrexate, what is our role as emergency doctors in terms of facilitating this? So once we made that diagnosis of the ectopic pregnancy, we want to help out our colleagues by facilitating their assessment and, uh, and treatment of the patient. So we want to make sure that all the appropriate tests that the patient needs has been done. So they need to have that blood work sent off. They need the, the CBC and the HCG and the group and screen that all of these patients coming in get initially, but they also need to have uh, renal function tests, so BUN and creatinine, and the liver function tests uh, on the chart. We want to get a weight on the patient as well because these drugs are dosed on a body surface area basis, so we need to know how much they weigh and how tall they are as well. Let's say uh, you've referred your patient with an ectopic. They've been seen by your obstetric service. They're started on methotrexate and they're sent home. We see a lot of these patients come back to the emergency department with belly pain and or bleeding. How do you manage these patients who are already on methotrexate for an ectopic and come back to your emergency department? If they come back with those symptoms, then quite commonly they can get a couple of worrisome things at the beginning. They get this post-methotrexate pain, which sometimes can be there within the first week, even as late as two weeks when the rupture can occur as well. And we often see a little bit of a blip in their HCGs at the beginning as well, which tends to drop subsequently. So when they come back presenting with pain, uh, you almost have to reinvent the wheel and rule out the topic all over again. The beta will be important, just like it is in our other patients we discussed earlier in making the diagnosis. You're pretty well obligated to do the whole thing over again in terms of the exam and the ultrasound at the same time. And certainly you want to see an ectopic that's not enlarging. You want to see a beta that's going down, and you don't want to see significant amounts of free fluid in the areas we discussed earlier, Morrison's pouch and left upper quadrant. I think if all those factors are there, that there's not enlarging, that there's no extra fluid, that the betas are going down, then you can treat them as you would normally would with just analgesics and follow them up. If there's any concern that there's 
the opposite case happening. There's a risk of rupture because there is more fluid. It's either enlarging in size on the ultrasound or there's a greater increase in beta ACG, then you're going to be involving your obstetrical colleagues. What about going back to a pelvic exam for these patients who come back on methotrexate? Are there any warnings in terms of pelvic exam for these patients? So it's generally suggested that you defer the pelvic exam, the bimanual exam in particular on these patients who've been treated for ectopic pregnancy. And the theory behind this is, is if they're back with increased symptoms, maybe they've got an ectopic mass there that's just waiting to rupture and you might precipitate that by an overly vigorous physical exam. I think this is largely theoretical in in nature. I don't know that there's much in the way of good evidence for this. Again, it's this sort of physiologic reasoning that we often tend to fall back on in medicine. Uh, Having said that, and having said what we have about doing physical exams in these patients, uh, I think this is one area where probably doing your bimanual exam and speculum exam is not likely to really contribute that much because, as Dr. Claybo has said, these patients are all getting the blood testing and they're pretty much all getting an ultrasound done again anyways. Let the gynecologist rupture, not you. Right, yeah. <laughs> Let the people with knives who can, who can fix it uh, do, do the exam if, uh, if they're going to cause that type of complication. So in review, uh, Dr. Deshensky, could you just outline for us the major pitfalls when it comes to ectopic pregnancy? So uh, I think there's several things that we always need to keep in mind when we're, when we're faced with these patients. Don't assume that a low HCG rules out an ectopic. As we discussed, the the values can be really quite low and the patient can still have quite significant disease there. As with lots of things in medicine, classic presentations don't necessarily make up the majority of the presentations for a person with a given condition, so don't rely on that classic triad of ectopic pregnancy. Interpret your test results in context always, in particular the ultrasound, as we've talked about, they're very operator dependent. And so uh, can consider the report that you get from an ultrasound in the context of all the other clinical information that you have about the patient. We need to be aware of the idea of assuming that the patient has actually completed their abortion when you don't see any products of conception and when you don't see a mass on exam. Always keep this in the back of your mind. Could this be an ectopic pregnancy in this situation? With respect to the stability of the patients, don't be falsely reassured by normal vital signs. And while it is very rare, and depending on where you're practicing, you might go your entire career without ever seeing a heterotopic pregnancy, if the clinical presentation is consistent with it, even if you see an IUP, if the patient's uh, physical exam or or clinical characteristics are worrisome, do consider that as as a possibility, and in particular in your IVF patients. And uh, lastly, just making sure that the patient has clear follow-up arranged if you do not see an intrauterine pregnancy so that these patients can be followed with serial betas and serial ultrasounds. Rockin'. So let's move on to our third and final case. This is the case of a 41-year-old homeless woman who's 15 weeks by dates. She's been vomiting daily for weeks, but that day she experienced an acute onset of severe left lower quadrant pain, increasing vomiting, and vaginal bleeding. She comes in with a blood pressure of 160 on 100. She's got no prenatal care. Her beta-HCG is 340,000. So 
Dr. Dushinsky, what are your general thoughts about this case? Well, uh, off the top of my head, I'd say there's lots of things that are really concerning with uh, this particular presentation. Right off the bat, the fact that she's 41 and homeless increases her risk for all manner of complications. Older women who are pregnant are prone to a lot of different complications in pregnancy. And homelessness and the fact that she's had no prenatal care also significantly increases her, her, her risk of a variety of different conditions. She's got lateralizing abdominal pain, and as we've been talking about, lateralizing pain with a positive beta is always concerning for an ectopic pregnancy. But we also need to keep in mind as well that just because somebody becomes pregnant, they don't all of a sudden become bulletproof to all the other things that can happen to everybody else in terms of causes of pain. So we still have to keep the other things in the back of our mind for the differential for this patient's pain. Uh, it could be really related renal colic, she could have diverticulitis, she, it might be ovarian related in terms of torsion or a large cyst, and we need to sort of keep these things in, in mind as well. The fact that she's been having persistent vomiting for weeks is something that uh, kind of gets my attention as well. She's 15 weeks by dates right now. Hyperemesis gravidarum is a, a, a real and important diagnosis in pregnancy. For the majority of patients who get it, it is diminishing by the end of the first trimester, although there are some women who will continue to vomit uh, throughout the pregnancy. We need to think about other causes of why she might be vomiting in particular. So again, she's uh, in this sort of marginalized socioeconomic uh, group, so maybe there's substance abuse involved, maybe she's uh, an alcoholic, could she have pancreatitis or uh, other things that might increase her risk and and cause her to be vomiting for another reason. But even with the pregnancy-related causes, if you're having a lot of vomiting or hyperemesis uh, well into the second trimester, you have to consider rarer diagnoses uh, like uh, molar pregnancies as well. That blood pressure uh, gets my attention too. 160 over 100 is not a normal blood pressure for the average 41-year-old and certainly not normal in pregnancy. Now, she's throwing up and she's in pain right now, so some of this could be just uh, sympathetic overdrive, but you've also got to think about uh, preeclampsia in this patient. And again, elevated blood pressure in the second trimester of pregnancy could be primary hypertension, it could be a, an early preeclampsia, or again, it might be actually associated with less common cause like a, a molar pregnancy. Because she's had no prenatal care, we don't know even if she might have a, a twin pregnancy or, or something else going on as well. So I think there's a, a whole pile of issues that are, are raised by the, the preamble of this case that would need some close attention. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Dushinsky's assessment and differential on this lady. The beta is abnormally high, and as we mentioned at the outset, the 10 betas tend to rise to about the 10th week to the 12th week at the outset, and then they diminish. So she's having a ultra-high beta at a stage of pregnancy that you don't expect it. So hers is 340,000. 340,000. What do you usually tend to well, see? Well, normally they say under, under 200,000. So the fact that she's even over 200,000 is a rough threshold. You'd be concerned of trophoblastic disease even even at a higher chance with this okay. an absolute number. And then, as you mentioned, she's in a demographic that's high risk for many things. And if we go back to the combination of the beta and the age, trophoblastic disease is higher than women over 35. Pretty low incidence in North America, it's about one in 1,000 to one in 1,500. The incidence goes a little bit higher in Asia, so patients in the Far East tend to have an incidence maybe more around one in 50 to one in 500. 
so it, it's more of a problem in, in those countries. But North America, it's still relatively a rare cause of early trimester bleeding. But this patient has all the features of it, including the exaggerated symptoms of early preeclampsia, exaggerated vomiting, as you said, way beyond the normal time, very exaggerated beta HCG. So the patient went on to have an urgent ultrasound, and lo and behold, the ultrasound showed a typical grape-like or snowstorm appearance of a molar pregnancy, as well as a left ovarian torsion. The obstetrician was called. They suggested to start IV labetalol for presumed preeclampsia on the way to the OR. The patient had their uterus evacuated, and she lost her left ovary. It's important to remember that while we think of that classic sort of snowstorm appearance on the ultrasound, it's actually a more complex diagnosis to, to make even for the, the radiologist. And in the first trimester, the ultrasound is only about 45% sensitive for a molar pregnancy early on. So this diagnosis is often delayed until the patient progresses into second trimester, and this is actually recognized. Like you mentioned, this is a rare diagnosis, but what do we need to know as eMERGE docs about gestational trophoblastic disease or molar pregnancy? It tends to present with all the exaggerated symptoms of pregnancy, some just aggravating, such as the vomiting, others more dangerous with the hypertension. Of course, the carcinomatous changes that can occur with trophoblastic disease is a, a real risk too, but that's something that we often don't deal with. That's more of a follow-up uh, issue with the obstetrics uh, people who are looking after them. The common things that happen with them, as I mentioned, they have a lot of exaggerated pregnancy symptoms. One of them, which is both aggravating and potentially dangerous, is the large cysts they get with it because the stimulation of the uh, luteal cells. They can get cysts often larger than five to six centimeters regularly, mm. which can rupture and cause a lot of hemodynamic problems as well as pain. So the molar pregnancy in this case, the patient had a ovarian torsion as well. So right. the, but, they're actually at higher risk for ovarian torsion just by having a molar pregnancy. Right, just from having these large cysts that are reactive. Very similar to the hyperstimulation, only even a more exaggerated form of hyperstimulation syndrome we see with infertility patients. So. Uh, one, one other uh, clinical feature to look for in these patients as well is uh, that they often do become clinically hyperthyroid. And this actually has to do with the stimulation of HCG on the TSH receptors. So they, they can be clinically quite hyperthyroid, which uh, contributes to all the other symptoms that they're getting as well. A good proportion of these patients can go on to have malignant disease. So all these patients need to be referred and their uterus needs to be evacuated. And some of them will need to work up for metastatic disease. That brings us to a final case that Dr. Dushensky is going to describe for us now. So there was uh, one case that uh, I reviewed recently that happened in our department that uh, I think illustrated some of the pitfalls that we have around this diagnosis. There was a, a patient who had uh, come into our emergency department who was around uh, eight weeks gestation by dates who had an assessment. She had had a little bit of bleeding and some very minor pain, which had actually resolved during the emergency department visit. She was hemodynamically stable in the ED. Her abdominal exam was really unremarkable. And she had a pelvic exam that showed a small amount of old looking blood with a closed os and no significant pain on the bimanual exam. A bedside ultrasound was done on the patient and it did not show a diagnostic uh, intrauterine pregnancy at that time. 
Her blood work came back and it showed that her HCG level was uh, 3,200. So because of the discordance between uh, no intrauterine pregnancy and the HCG level, the staff at that time opted to get a formal uh, ultrasound exam done during that visit. And the formal ultrasound came back confirming that there was no diagnostic intrauterine pregnancy and they did not see anything else in the pelvis either. So there were no other signs of, of an ectopic, there was no free fluid in the abdomen. As the patient was quite stable and uh, it was evening time by the time this was all done, it was elected to send her home for follow-up with our early pregnancy clinic. She was told that she may have an ectopic pregnancy. And because it was evening, rather than bringing her back the next morning, they waited until the morning after, so a day and a half to bring her back, repeat the ultrasound, and get followed up in the clinic at that time. And when she had the repeat ultrasound done, at that time, it did show now a complex mass in the right adnexa adjacent to the ovary, which was almost five centimeters in, uh, in maximum diameter, and they saw what they felt was a fetal heart within that mass. There was no signs of rupture, no free fluid in the pelvis, so the patient was sent back uh, to the emergency department and seen by the gynecology service. The reason this case came to my attention for a review was that the uh, attending gynecologist who ended up seeing this patient opined that if only we had consulted the gynecology service at the time of the first visit, that it would have simplified the management for the patient because then at that point, without an evidence of an intrauterine pregnancy but no ectopic scene, they would have treated with methotrexate and the management of the patient would have been simpler. In this case, the patient had to go to the operating room because there was a fetal heart with an ectopic and she ended up with a, a salpingostomy and did quite well from that. So this case was illustrative for a few reasons. First, it, it did demonstrate quite nicely that an ectopic pregnancy is a real thing, even if you don't see it on an initial exam. But I think this really highlighted some of the shortcomings of ultrasound. Clearly, in a day and a half, this patient didn't go from having nothing in the adnexa to all of a sudden having a four and a half centimeter mass with a fetal heart. This really suggests that the first ultrasound simply missed it and there was something there at the time, they just didn't recognize it. And it underlines that this is not a perfect technology, it's very operator dependent. And even in a center that does lots and lots of these ultrasounds where our techs and our radiologists are excellent at it, they're still gonna miss this sometimes. And uh, the criticism of sending this patient home, I think, uh, again, helped what was highlighted by some of the things that we talked about in this talk. Even though that HCG was high, we know that there's evidence from the literature that some of those patients where you don't see an IUP initially will go on to have normal pregnancies that may go on to live births. And when they're stable and they've got a clear plan for follow-up, the ability to come back to the hospital and they've been educated on what to watch for and what the warning signs are, this was really probably a completely appropriate way to manage this patient. Before we wrap it up, I've got this month's quote of the month. This one's by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was an American physician, poet, writer, humorist, and professor at Harvard in the 1800s. The great thing in the world is not so much where we stand as in what direction we are moving. For next month's episode, we're going to continue our respiratory emergencies where we left off with Dr. Anil Chopra and Dr. John Foote, 
We're going to talk about COPD and pneumonia, pleural effusions, and a whole lot more. So until next time, take it easy.